My name is Mickey Edwards, and welcome on behalf of uh, the Aspen Institute for this uh, program where we're going to talk. That we, we've had a series of programs about race and about uh, the one that, that was just held on race and crime. And we're going to now move into a little broader picture about politics and about how the, the politics of our age is influenced by race, how race influences uh, people who get into the political uh, arena, whether or not it uh, is a difficult barrier to overcome if you want to get into the political arena. We have just two terrific speakers, and I should start by saying we were going to have three. I have to apologize for the mistake in the, uh, in the program you have because the, third, the other panelist who we were going to have, John Chung, uh, who, like Kasim and Kamala, is a member of the Aspen Institute's Rodell Fellowships. Uh, John has the enviable job. I mean, you all wish that you had it instead. He is the state controller for California. Uh, and, uh, yes, and he had, he just had, he was coming and he had to go back because of a court decision about a big payment that has to be made uh, uh, in California. But we do have, uh, two people who we have identified in the Aspen Institute as really the rising young political leaders of America. And when you hear them, you'll know why some of you have already heard them. Uh, Kasim Reed uh, is the mayor of Atlanta. He spent years uh, first in the state legislature and the state senate, uh, driven to uh, change Atlanta, to not, as he will put it, and some of you have heard him put it, he is not somebody who believes in kicking the problems farther down the road for somebody else to take care of. You know, he's got the job, he's got the authority, and he's going to use it. Uh, and uh, some of you have heard him already. Kasim Reed is, is doing wonders for the city of Atlanta. And with him, Kamala Harris. Kamala, I, I, I think I hate Kamala uh, because she, uh, she's the district attorney in San Francisco. Uh, her second term. She's now, by the way, the Democratic candidate for nominee for Attorney General of California. Uh, and what what what's what I hate is that when she when, when she ran for re-election, she got 98 percent of the vote. That seems really unfair. You know, so, uh, but. Just really, you know, doing terrific work. But, but what we're going to talk about uh, is race and politics, which is a little broader problem. So I want to start by, by just posing two uh, general kinds of questions with a little background. One, one time when, when I, was, I was teaching at Harvard and we had a, a group of us get together uh, in the faculty, and it was back when there was a lot of talk about creating majority-minority districts, trying to draw congressional district lines in a way to ensure that an African-American would be elected. And we had a very interesting debate because the uh, uh, more of the white liberals who were afraid uh, that would result in electing more conservative uh, whites in the other districts, uh, and therefore we're, we're inclined to say to the African-Americans on the faculty, you know, don't worry, you know, you don't need to redraw the districts, we'll take care of it. You know, and, and the African Americans were saying, 
Well, you know, we want a seat at the table. We want to be ones that help to decide. We don't just want, you know, somebody else taking care of the issues for us. Well, now we have reached a point since then. That was several years ago. Uh, we have uh, uh, African Americans or Indian Americans or other people in minorities uh, in really important positions, many of the major committee chairmanships in Congress, uh, governors, uh, mayors, uh, attorney generals. You know, have we reached? So, so the first part of the question is about the seat at the table. Have we gotten to a place where we have transcended the problem of race as a barrier that was keeping good people out, uh, where, where people who represented minority communities were not part of the decision-making process. You know, uh, did Barack Obama's election change things, or is it still a, uh, a situation where um, the, the minority communities are underrepresented in making uh, the decisions for the country? Well, I think it would be a mistake to use um, the president's election uh, as a barometer because to do that would, to, would deny that the president's extraordinary. You can't take an individual who is, by every stretch of the imagination, the exception, and then say that that should generally be the standard that you apply broadly because by every stretch of the imagination, um, Barack Obama, what I used to say before he was president, was the Michael Jordan. Uh, certainly in, in, uh, in the history of African-American politics, and I think in terms of campaigning and all the rest, he's a unique person. But you can't you know, be on a basketball team and tell somebody to jump from the free throw and slam dunk. Um, that's great to tell somebody. <laughs> Barack Obama could do that, I mean, politically. But you know, you line up 99 other folks and tell them, well, you know, the best play is to dribble down the court when you get to the top of the key, just jump and dunk the ball. And I think that that's the mistake we make, but I think that, uh, that, what, that the thoughtful approach is really to acknowledge that, that America is becoming more perfect and we're getting there. And that this is a hard problem and that we have to be always at it until I really think we break through. So my straight answer is, is that uh, President Obama is unique, that it's wrong to take the standard uh, of the president and then to, to make a broader judgment of where we are in terms of electoral politics. That said, I believe that, uh, that talent is driving more political decisions uh, across communities, black communities, white communities. Um, the days where you could be a black politician and win a black district are, in my judgment, done. If you're a black politician who's awful, you're gonna get beat by someone else who's better. And I also think that there are black folks, black politicians who are talented, who can be in majority white districts that are driven. I think the future is talent because people are fed up with pretty much everything and they, wanna, they want folks that can deliver. And I think that that's where the future is. It's gonna be a talent-driven game. So in my, my election, being a mayor of a city of Atlanta, which is a majority black city, black city, is not by any means a slam dunk. But if a white person became mayor of Atlanta, uh, they would have to work as hard to maintain relationship and support in the black community if, if you want to govern the city as opposed to govern half of it. And I'm excited about it. I think it's uh, helpful. So um, I think it suggests that we are becoming uh, more perfect, but we certainly can't use the president 
uh, as the barometer to pull back on the, the progress we've made in other spaces. What do you think, Kabbalah? Is, is, is uh, have we gone past the point where if you're in the minority community, it's really a big barrier to get over to be elected? Well, I agree with, with everything that Kasim said about the president. And, um, and I will also frame my thoughts in the context of, of just California being such a large state. We have seven constitutional officers in California. And there has not been an African-American elected statewide in California in over 30 years. When I was elected DA of San Francisco, I was elected as the first African-American woman DA in the state of California. We have 58 counties in the state of California. So. Um, and there's that, and that's in history. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So when we look at the numbers, I think that the numbers of people who hold these elected offices, which are representatives of a community. Um, if we look at the, the various demographics, we will see that the African-American um, representation in these positions is, is, is horribly low mm -hmm. compared to the, the proportion in, in a community. Um, but you know, that being said, I, I sit here as a woman also, and there's not ever been, not only an African-American elected as Attorney General, but never a woman elected Attorney General in the state of California. And we only have, of those seven constitutional officers right now, one woman elected statewide in California of the, all of those positions. So um, I think that we have come a long way when someone like Hillary Clinton can be taken seriously as, as, as being a candidate for president of the United <laughs> States. I think we have come a long way when I look at California and we bring Dianne Feinstein and Nancy Pelosi and Barbara Boxer um, as images of, of who can hold these positions and, and do well. But I also think we have a lot more to do in terms of feeding the pipeline um, to, to achieve the goal of having equal representation in these offices. And the reality of running for office is that one is not considered a viable candidate unless one has the ability to raise money. So when we talk about a candidate's ability to raise money, what Kasim and I both know is when you first decide to run from office, everyone will say, well, the first pot you go to is your love money. And that's your friends and your family. Well, depending on who your friends and family are, you may have either a larger or a smaller pot of love money. Right? There will be a lot of people praying for you. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you've got to also do some other stuff to, to win office. And so, you know, and so there are, um, I think, efforts to encourage women, African-Americans, Latinos, and others who are not necessarily part of the mainstream of elected um, leadership to um, focus on, and on the skills that are necessarily, and, and one of the biggest ones being how do you raise the money to do it. Um, and to the extent that most of the African-Americans that are thinking about running for office do not come from backgrounds that are, um, that are financial backgrounds, both in terms of their own personal wealth or family wealth or even their profession, it makes it a bigger challenge for African-Americans to run for office. And we have to, I think, focus on the need to figure out another way to strengthen their candidacies to be able to hold office. Um, because otherwise, we will not see the representation. You will find, I think, generally speaking, that um, 
that, that you know, Kasim has been successful as a lawyer in, in private practice. He's very well regarded. But a lot of people we also will see who want to run for elected office um, come from, let's say, a background as being a teacher or holding some kind of other position where they have not necessarily acquired the, um, the professional network that can support their candidacy at its beginning and then so on. But that being said, I think a lot of us who hold or, or are aspiring to hold statewide office who are African American, um, you'll see that we come from districts where the maybe less than half of our constituency is African American. And there is crossover and there's obviously the need to, to recognize that one represents all people regardless of their own ethnicity. Yeah, and, and thinking and of course uh, the minority communities in this country uh, are varied. So you're, you're African American, you're also Indian, Indian. American. Yeah. Uh, and so mm -hmm. uh, in, in two deep south states, uh, Bobby Jindal being elected governor in Louisiana, and uh, and now Nikki Haley winning the Republican nomination for governor yeah. in, in South Carolina. I mean, are these some signs that maybe people are more willing to do exactly what Kasim said, is look for talent rather than w whether you look like us? Talent is, I mean, I, I will say that talent is driving the deal right now. Candidates, uh, and elections are being won by the person that is the most talented, I think is very healthy. I think Kamala really <coughs> drove home uh, the point uh, in a more elegant fashion than I did. She really shows the challenge around uh, being a minority candidate. Uh, there is not a significant uh, African-American elected official uh, that does not have the capability to raise the money nationally. Mm -hmm. So when Barack Obama was running, if, if we were to really lay facts bare, and since we're at Aspen, if we were having a real conversation, I would not be mayor of Atlanta. I raised $3.3 million in my race. I raised a third of that outside of the state of Georgia. So African-American candidates do not have the capability, including uh, President Obama, who when he ran for the United States Senate, had organized campaign committees in almost every major city in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I would hazard a guess that 25 to 30 percent of the dollars raised, I'm not talking about when it looked like he was going to win. I mean when he was calling folk directly and he was a long shot in the U.S. Senate race. And my point is, is if you look at the models, there is no Kamala Harris has been to Atlanta multiple times yes. and we were smart enough to invest in her. When I ran for mayor, she had me in San Francisco along with Mayor Willie Brown. I raised money in 11 cities when I was running for mayor. Um, that is not something that uh, a candidate from the white community with my competitors, and, uh, and there was a major white uh, can candidate in my race, didn't raise 98% of their money from within Atlanta and the state of Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the model is a different model that suggests um, that, that we have a ways to go. Uh, because when we say we want to we, we we uh, prepare to run for major offices, if you don't have a, a national uh, network of relationships, then, uh, then you're going to have some challenges. So if, moving then from uh, the issue of how difficult it is to get elected, mm -hmm. uh, I wonder then about the ability of our policy-making process as it is now constituted, to address concerns about minority communities. Uh, there was at one point 
during the Obama pres uh, presidential campaign early on uh, when some African Americans openly questioned whether he was black enough because mm -hmm. he, he wasn't talking enough about the issues that they thought he should talk about. More recently, a number of uh, African American leaders uh, confronted the administration saying, you're not talking enough about the issues that affect our community uh, directly. So th th there's a question of whether or not, uh, you know, years now after Brown, for various different kinds of reasons, you, you have all, you still have segregated schools in, you know, maybe even larger numbers than, than before. So uh, is the policy community, the politics that we have today addressing the problems of the minority communities? So, so when, so Kasim and I are longstanding friends and, and, and have supported each other for many years. In sure. fact, Kasim came out in my primary election for Attorney General, which the election was June 8th, and that last Sunday did eight African-American churches with me one Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. Took the late flight out the night before and then took the red eye back out because he had three speeches in Atlanta that next, next Monday day. morning. Got to take care of home. Yeah. <laughs> Get beat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but when, when Barack, so I supported him when he, when he ran for state, for Senate, for U.S. Senate, he supported me in my reelection for DA, and when he decided to run, Kasim and I and many others were the first in our states to, to endorse his candidacy. And so then that question came up. Is he, is he really black, and is he black enough? And many reporters, because of you know, my position as a chair of the campaign, would ask me the question, how do you respond to this? And I'd say, well, listen, like Kasim, I went to Howard University. <coughs> and you could stand in the middle of the yard, we call it, which is the big grass-covered square in the middle of campus. And if you looked around, you would see young African-Americans, if they were coming from the business school, walking around carrying briefcases. If you looked over there at the School of Fine Arts, you'd see young African-Americans running around in leotards. If you looked over there, white lab coats from the medical school, the football star, the homecoming queen, the president of the debate team. And one of the problems in the discussion of race in this country is one, people want to have discussions in a soundbite and that can't happen because the subject of race in America is such a complicated one. And it is in many ways marred by, in that context of that conversation, what are convenient boxes or categories that have been portrayed about who and what is an African-American. And so my response to those in those interviews was always, don't burden Barack Obama by the general public's inability to understand how diverse this community and culture is. That's somebody else's problem, not his. And, um, and, and so when you hold these offices, it is about then being a multifaceted individual who understands, you know, one of the issues that's important to me is the environment. Well, for a number of reasons, including I, there are a lot of communities that I care deeply about that we all do that happen to be socioeconomically poor where there's been a history of toxic dumping and pollution because it's where industry existed and those communities are poor communities. Are many of them African-American? Yes. Is that why I care about those communities? No. Uh, there are issues that relate to my obvious chosen profession as a criminal justice system. Well, when I decided to be a prosecutor, having parents who fought for civil rights and marched 
and had hoses sprayed at them by police officers. The choice that I made to become a DA, to become a prosecutor, was a curious choice. My sister, for example, went on to be the executive director of the ACLU. But I decided to do this work because I believe that in order to change a system, let's not only approach it from the outside of the door on bended knee or trying to break down the door, let's also be at the table where the important decisions are being made and in that process have impact. And we've seen the impact. And I've seen an incredibly large number of law students of color in much higher numbers consider a career as a prosecutor instead of what has been the natural expectation or course, that is if you want to go into criminal law, you become a public defender because that's the way to take care of the community. Um, I think that when you have more and more of us who were born out of the benefits of the civil rights movement, but al have also seen and sat there where people were shouting and marching and screaming at televisions and frustrated, and we saw all that, I think a lot of us with our feet's feet if in the civil rights movement put our heads somewhere where let's just go wherever we need to go to achieve the result <laughs> instead of perhaps banging people over their head on why they should care. Let's go to these positions where one can be DA or be mayor and then put in place programs that are absolutely consistent with the civil rights agenda but are also consistent with the smartest way to run a city or to run a criminal justice system. And in that way perhaps there is a new um, version of, of, of the elected leader who happens to be African American or Latino or a person of color that is a different image than, than those that came out of um, the 60s and the 70s in those early years. Right. See, Mickey, I think the racial frame is just off for, the new gen for a new generation of African American leaders uh, and really min minority leaders, but certainly African American leaders. And I, and I, I think of it in this fashion. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that to advance uh, the interest of minorities, certainly African Americans, you cannot continue to use old arguments. And my conversation about advancing African Americans' interest and minority interest has to do with the strength of the United States of America. Because if you walk into a room and you have the same old conversations about transformation, folks have heard it and we have progressed to a certain point. Now, I happen to believe that there is an interest in making sure that black people do well and that Latino people do well because it is essential to the overall strength of the country. And the country isn't in a place anymore where it can have large pockets of its population that have to be carried or that have need. We need every single person contributing. And that's really the conversation that I have. Now, I come from Atlanta, Georgia which birthed the civil rights movement in many ways because it was the home right. of Dr. Martin Luther King and all of the rest and Andrew Young uh, and Joseph Lahr and a long list of people that really stood on the front lines uh, for, for civil justice and human rights. But when I run for mayor, uh, we have something in Atlanta called sitting, sitting time. Uh, when I want to do something uh, that is inconsistent with um, historical civil rights views, like put 100 police officers on the streets, I have a zero tolerance for crime and violence, um, at raise the, the salary of police officers, do things that don't fit within the traditional stereotype of a, of a modern urban leader, I do go explain. 
-hmm. It's called sitting time. Now you cannot explain if you want, but I believe in the philosophy of winning. You will, you will pay a price. So in a modern politician like Kamala has to understand that while you move African-American politics and minority politics in a different direction, you can't just snatch it. Mm -hmm. It requires working at it, explanation, mm -hmm. making your case, taking hits, taking heat to move folks. Because in Atlanta, Georgia, if I have a policy position and Andrew Young stands up and says that that's horrible for working people and poor people, well, guess what happens to me, right? <laughs> well, the fact of the matter is I wouldn't be mayor without Ambassador Young. But I'm certainly very different and make very different decisions than he would make. But I've had no bigger supporter because I'm not crazy and I spend time making the argument and making the case and that's how you hold your community with you. And that is the gap that I see. I think when you look at our tours election in Birmingham, Alabama, mm -hmm. I mean, folks haven't really talked about it, but here's an extraordinary gifted election official who completely lost his base for lack of sitting time. Every position that he took, he could have taken with appropriate explanation um, to, to, to make your case, and I like Artur, and I'm That's not- That's Artur Davis, him, congressman from- uh, in, any, in any way, I think he's a, a tremendous talent, but I'm trying to give you a specific example mm -hmm. of this, this story that I'm telling you about where I believe that uh, politics in the black community certainly uh, is going. And I think if we move in that direction, mm -hmm. talent and merit is gonna dominate, and the country is gonna benefit. If you look at the quality of the candidates, that are coming through the pipeline right now. It strongly suggests um, that, this, that this is happening. Think about your questions. I'm gonna ask one more question and then I would. Um, so, so what I'm hearing from both of you uh, is that uh, in a way that, that there, there's not this hard line of separation between the way people in the minority communities, the white community uh, are seeing things and dealing with things and and some of that division is gone, which means you have the same problems we have. Uh, and one of the things that uh, uh, I find in one of my classes that I teach, uh, I, I write the word passion on the board and I ask students to talk about what their passion is. And, and it's not as it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago. They have a hard time thinking about what, what it is they're passionate about or, or mo want to mobilize for, what they want to care about. Uh, so I mean, there was a really great uh, African-American turnout for Barack Obama, but was that a one-time thing? You've already said he, you know, he was a superstar. Uh, in, in the white community, it's really hard to get young people knowledgeable about government, knowledgeable about civics, committed to working uh, for community betterment. Uh, you have the same problem, how do you turn it around? I think that's just an easy excuse. Um, in my election in the city of Atlanta, we had a runoff, and I came in second place in the primary and won the runoff. And in the runoff, for the first time in the history of the city of Atlanta, we had more people vote in a runoff than voted in a primary. Mm -hmm. Never happened before. My point is, is this, you just can't listen to this stuff. I mean, I'm a big will person, and I, I, I believe that at this point in time, 
Uh, when you make a decision to give, you lead and you have to challenge these views. And we implemented, we used a number of people from President Obama's campaign. Um, Cornell Belcher, one of his posters, was my poster. The turnout operation we hired. And we didn't do the turn, have the turnout what the president did, but we did very well. We did more than we did. So, I mean, I, you know, I take this position that, that, that it is really about inches for us. That's why I wanted to be by Kamala's side. I, I knew that she was going to win, but I wanted to win by a lot. <laughs> I mean, I literally do. You know, Bill Clinton had one of the biggest, best quotes. Bill Clinton said, if you can win by a ton, win by a ton. <laughs> <laughs> because when you win by a ton, the things that you ran for, you get to do, you get to push. Yeah. And when you win in these, I mean, when you put all of this, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from Georgia, so we, we might be a little slow, but when you do all these <laughs> fancy things, <laughs> um, I just believe that, uh, that, it really, that it really slows you down a bit. Yeah, we've noticed you're really slow. Yeah. <laughs> See, Kasim says he thought he knew I was going to win. I, I, there's another saying Bill Clinton has, which is you either run without an opponent or you run scared. Yeah. And I was running scared, and I'm still running scared. And in terms of then turning out our base, yeah. you know, so I'm engaged in a campaign right now, and, um, and working toward November, we're coming up with our strategy and, you know, defining the base. And so my base is, and will include women, it will include African Americans, it will include Asian Americans, will include a number of, of different groups, young people. I'm proud to say I have 24,000 friends on Facebook. Yeah. Um, but in turning out the vote and the base, what happens in a campaign, now here's the inside <coughs> conversation, that's not a pretty one. So the, we talked already about the need to raise money. That's the only way you can become viable and win, especially when you're running statewide. In California, it costs $2 million a week mm -hmm. to talk to people on television. And because election day is no longer one day, it's 30 days because of early voting, and you want to talk with people a couple of weeks before they've made their decision. Six weeks on TV, you can do the math, right? So, and who can raise $12 million? So resources are scarce. So then the inside conversation in a campaign is a brutal cost-benefit conversation. What's the cost of talking with this population versus the return on investment, meaning are they going to vote? Are they likely to vote? Do they historically vote? With limited resources and we have to treat and kind of the, the, the state with a scalpel, let's pick who we're gonna talk to based on high propensity voters. And I have consistently in my, in my campaigns had conversations with my consultants where I say, listen, first of all, these communities that are low propensity voters are excited about my candidacy and will vote for me. Two, it is very important to me that in a campaign our focus is recognizing there are two benefits to the process. There is obviously the outcome, the win, and hopefully winning huge, but there is also what I think can and should be done in a campaign, and Barack Obama's campaign did this, which is empower communities. You know, by turning people out to vote, you empower them, both because they have then heard something that lets them know that they matter. And when they turn out in great droves, the next election cycle, perhaps the pundits will say, 
oh, well, you might want to put some resources in that community because they actually do vote, right? Because the reality of it is that, you know, every candidate for running for, in running for office has a pollster. And you know what that pollster does in the beginning? They go out and they tell you what the electorate believes is important as opposed to you having your own idea of what's important. And hopefully there's some match between the two. But often, the people who will be polled are the high propensity voters. And so then the candidate will wrap their message around what that constituency wants to hear. We'll look at the cycle we've got ourselves in. And so part of what I know that, I mean, this is what we did that last Sunday, and I did it for many Sundays, where California's African-American population is maybe 6%. But every Sunday, I'd go out there. I didn't see any of my six other opponents at the black churches. And I'd do four or five. That last Sunday, we did eight. Mm -hmm. Going and talking with the congregations in those churches <laughs> about the issues and getting feedback from them. And, you know, that was human capital and the, the expense of me doing it. And it was about also saying to my campaign, look, we're going we're gonna to outreach and hopefully we're going to also recognize that we have to then craft our message to this group and craft our priorities, policy priorities to this group as well. But it's a challenge. It's a challenge because, again, this is all connected. You empower a community to believe it counts. It will vote. It will be participate in the electoral process. And in, the way of, in, and in doing that, it will also hopefully encourage members of that community to know that they can be part of the process and think of themselves as viable candidates. And this is where role modeling and, 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 and mentoring, everything that we've done with the Rodell, uh, the Aspen Fellowship and other similar programs become important because Kasim, you know, Atlanta politics are so wonderful for African American elected from around the country. And we all go there. We all go to Atlanta. Because since the days, even before, but of the civil rights movement, there has been a, a structure in Atlanta that is like a, 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 a womb. And you go to Atlanta, and they say, come in. And write and, checks. And write, we will write you <laughs> checks. We know we're going to write you checks. You, we know, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to talk to you about, are you doing this? Are you doing this? And know you have a place in Atlanta. And, and that's a wonderful thing because so, for someone to run for elected office, you need to believe and you need to know that there is a community that supports you, that understands your experience in life, understands your purpose for doing your work, and says, not only will I pray for you, but I'll write a check for you and I'll do everything that we need to do to make you politically viable. And, um, but, but all of these, these issues are interlinked. And, for candidates like me and for Kasim, and you can even read, read it, which I have not yet had the time to read Game Change, but I'm told even there, there is a conversation about what the president experienced in fighting with his own campaign to say, let's focus on the African American community. Let's focus on some of these communities. Do we have staff that reflects, the, the, you know, are my top staff people in any way connected to these communities? Um, I'll tell you, that's another inside piece about hiring campaign staff. The people who have the most experience and who have successfully run statewide elections are, generally speaking, white men. 
And it's because that's just it. And so in my camp for, campaign, for example, I've been very adamant that we have to hire on paid staff women and ethnic minorities. And so, yes, I know they won't have the top-level positions because they don't have the experience, but where are they ever going to get the experience if we don't reach out to hire them? And I've heard from people on my staff, well, I don't, I don't know any. Well, that's right. Go outside your Rolodex and your comfort zones. Let's find them and involve them. Let's mentor young people in a way that encourages them to run for city council and one day run for mayor of Atlanta and DA of San Francisco. So there's some good maturity occurring. I mean, it, it is. I mm -hmm. mean, when Kamala was in Atlanta, Ambassador Young was at the first event we ever did for Kamala. Yeah. So there is some maturity occurring. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I, I will share, you, share with you the, the most profound moment when I was running for mayor, probably one or two, was I was in a fundraiser at a fundraiser in Chicago. And um, I was losing at the time. And uh, Ambassador Young called me. And, uh, and I stepped outside of the fundraiser. And uh, he said, uh, where are you? And I said, uh, I'm in Chicago raising money for the campaign to keep it going. He said, well, you know, this is the, the number by my bed. He said that um, whenever you can't sleep, I want you to call me. Yeah. So he said, "When right. if you can't sleep, I don't want to be asleep. Mm. Now, That's he right. said, I used to do that for Martin. So I'm a 40-year-old guy, right? <laughs> and, I, and it was brilliant. I mean, I talked to him about it now because he did two things. Yeah. One, he made me shake a thousand more hands. If you didn't feel motivated then, but he both helped me drove me, but he also put a mantle of responsibility on me all in a three-minute <laughs> conversation. <laughs> and he had put so much on the line. But I mean, that maturity is really what I see is probably one of the most um, positive things I see happening that is not written about. Mm -hmm. um, because if I behaved in a manner, one thing about Atlanta, if you behave in a manner that is not consistent, you get called in. Yeah. But it's because they put in. <laughs> they put in you. And uh, that's what many of the folks, uh, folks do here. You put in and help uh, people like Kamala and me and others. Yeah. Um, and I'm telling you, it, it is helping the country. Yeah. Uh, Laura, let me know when there's five minutes left, will you? Okay. Okay. Uh, Laurie? Yeah, hi. Street fight. Um, street fight, yeah. And you know, the good news and the bad news is that he's got a lot of supporters of what likes me white, Jewish, old. Um, so <laughs> he speaks fluent Hebrew. I speak yeah. five words. Uh -huh. <laughs> so how, how will that, he's a jockey temper issue. Yeah. What does he do going forward? You know, it's the good news and the bad news that he's got, you know, a lot of supporters like me, but you saw street fight. It also yeah. worked against him. Yeah, but you know what? I, this is what I, what I hope you'll remember. And Kamala and Corey and I did an event together in Denver, so we're networked. We text each other all the time. But this is what I hope you'll remember. This isn't going to be easy for us. We just need to suck it up and get on with it. I'm telling you, my generation, 
really it's needs. True. Tommy really needs to get on it's with true. it. My campaign was horrible. They said a ton of bad things about me, but did I really expect to become the mayor of the capital city of the Southeast without going through pain and hardship? It was two awful years. I put everything on the line and almost got beat, but I didn't, I won. So it worked out. But this stuff is, my generation needs to get used to hardship and sacrifice. This thing about ease and things being hard, you know, Dr. King said the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I would add it bends towards justice because there are people pulling at it. It doesn't just bend. <laughs> there are people tugging at it, and it's hard, tough work. So with the thing, with, to watch Kamala and what she was going through, I was sitting at my friend's house, and I had flown in, I'm bone tired, and I'm flicking the channels, and I see this guy tearing the bark off of Kamala, this <laughs> guy that she whooped. But he had a lot of money, and it's four bad commercials, and then there was one Kamala commercial came on, and everybody cheered. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, just think of what she, she went through, what Corey went through. Yeah, if you're gonna lead a major American city, you ought to go through a lot. But he's got to, no, but he's got to make the arguments. Corey's got, and I've got to, she's got to make the arguments. Mm -hmm. you get, you, we're in situations, certainly when you have significant white support, you can't be an effective black politician and ever let anybody out-black you. Nobody can out-black me. Now, you can, we can get up. No, they try. You know, he's a corporate lawyer. I was a partner at Holland and Knight and all of this and all that. People tried to out-black me, all right? They tried to do the same thing to her. They do the same thing to Corey. They're doing the same thing to Adrian Fenty right now. Mm -hmm. it, if you believe in winning, yeah, they're trying to out-black um, Adrian Fenty in Washington, D.C. right now, which is what's driving down his black numbers. Now, if you're in politics, be in it. Mm -hmm. Stop playing. You can't be in politics and say, you know, I hate raising That's money. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to have that. No, if you're in it, if you, look at, if you look at what was special about President Obama, people talk about all this stuff. This man has an incredible pain threshold. It's mm -hmm. true. And nobody they ever says to. it. They always talk about hope and to. all of the rest. Mm -hmm. This man's capacity to endure pain is sure. extremely high. So when you watch the healthcare debate and people were tearing the bark off of this guy, that is somebody saying his presidency was gonna collapse if mm -hmm. healthcare, it was a wrap. And this guy is functioning and calm to the point that people think he's a Martian or something. <laughs> <laughs> but if you watch his speech, if you ever wanna see something, watch Barack Obama's Martin Luther King Day mm -hmm. speech in Washington, D.C., which is one of the rare moments that you ever see the toll that it was taken yeah. on. It was amazing. So I mean, when I say to Corey and all, get over it. If you wanna lead, lead, and understand that this stuff is hard, and it ought to be hard, mm -hmm. because we get to do incredible things when we get in office. And my generation is not being called to sacrifice in the manner that we need to be sacrificing for where this country is right now. We haven't carried the country through World War I, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, the civil and human rights movement, moving people out of Vietnam, and we walking around complaining. 
It's unbelievable to me. It is unbelievable. But nobody's asking us to do it. And nobody's making the argument for it. Yes. I'm sorry for the long answer. No. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, I need to give you a bit of context for my question because I'm not from US, so this is maybe. No, we're welcome. So I'm, I'm from, uh, from Europe, uh, and I belong to Roma minority, well known to you as gypsies. Yes. And we are originally from, from India. Yeah. So it's very interesting to me to learn how you switch to, from race cards to talent cards when it comes to electoral politics. But we are not at that stage. So I wonder, I'm, I'm just asking to move a step back from your generation uh, towards you know, 30, 40 years ago, whether race cards was the only one for, for, uh, for your community to prove that you have a talent, and yes. then you can play a talent card. Yes. card. Don't copy our game. I mean, play your game. There are great examples. The civil rights movement is new. It was, came from the work that Gandhi did. Wasn't rocket science. There was a there was a model that was developed that said that we're going to do things in demonstrations that that most centrist Americans are going to see at home that are unacceptable to them, and then we're going to impact the people at home, and they say that's not okay, and that's really why the march across Edmund Pettus Bridge and all of the demonstrations was so bad, and that's why the punishment that Dr. King and all of the rest took was so horrible. But it wasn't about the person that was hitting them in the head with the base bat. It was about the person that was at home that said, this is not going to happen in my country. That's what forced the country to move. Don't let someone else game, in my judgment, influence what is happening, uh, prevent you from using a model that might seem older or outdated. So maybe the model that Kamala and I are talking about right now isn't your model. But try them on. See if they fit. But the, 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 yeah. King, the Kingian model was the Gandhi model. Mm -hmm. It was just modernized and updated, which for, in my judgment, for most African Americans is no longer the model of the future. But for where you are, certainly uh, gypsies, that may be an appropriate model because the world may need to see how, how inappropriately you're being treated. And that might need to play out more, which is what the world needed to see what was happening to African Americans in a powerful way until it became so disgusted that it says that's not who we are. And truly, the first wave of, of, of these leaders were born of, supported by, and came out of their own community. And because there is something to also be said, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree that we're at a post-racial, I, I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. I and and no, so I, I you know I I don't ag I, I don't agree with the term I I don't agree it's just it's it it's a it's it is something we absolutely must aspire to, and it is and we are definitely closer to it than we were 30 years ago, but the reality of of many issues that um, that race impacts have not changed in this country. That being said, though, I I believe that in order to to establish re representation for your people in government. The way that it will occur is because there will be natural leaders that are born of this community, that know and understand the community. And to Kasim's point, and on, on a number of levels, both when he was talking about nobody's going to out-black him, it was about the sit-down. You have to stay true and honest and real with your communities, all whom you represent. But initially, 
the community that you represent that, that lifts you up. And, um, and but I don't, I, I don't, no, I I don't agree with the term race card because it does oversimplify it and it suggests that, that, is, that your race is to the exclusion of any other issue. And that's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is that it is often the situation that the communities that identify with you based on your life experience, based on some emotional pride they may have about your success, will definitely be the, that community that nurtures your development at its initial stage. And then one must advance and become more learned and sophisticated about all the communities that deserve representation. You know, there's a, an equation in politics where, where generally they'll tell you that for any of us as, as candidates and elected leaders, you know, you're going to have the 10% that will be with you whatever you do and the 10% that will never agree with you whatever you do. And then the battle is always for some, the, the group in the middle, right? And, and there is something to be said for having political capital. And it is often the case that the people who will come and shout at an injustice that has been waged against you right. will be the people who feel some sense of emotional connection with you. And often it is those people who identify with you. For me, because I'm a woman, because I'm a woman of color, for whatever reason. And, and that is a reality of it in terms of the role that race and gender play, especially if during the course of your career and especially a campaign, opponents do something that is clearly meant to, to push the button that is bringing up the gender point or the race point in a way that is not legitimate and not, um, and not connected with the important issues of the office. And, um, and it still does come up, though. You know, my, when I ran for DA, my mother, she said to me, because there had never been a woman, she said, Kamala, be, be clear that, um, that there are still two jobs that people aren't ready for a woman to take on, despite the role that women play in the, in the home. One, the role of keeping you safe, and the other of handling your money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Even though, of course, there's the tigress and the woman is controlling the budget. Um, there are other, you know, you know, when it comes to race, the same thing is true. Are people prepared for the idea that their top law enforcement officer will not be, you know, who the standard has been for centuries in this country? I think people are open and willing to that, but it's not their default position. And, and there are barriers that have to be broken to get them to a place where they can imagine <coughs> Who can do what work beyond who has traditionally done that work? And do not get tired. Yeah. Just <laughs> yeah. being a minority thing can really make you tired. Yeah. You can, it's a uh, big push. Uh, do, no, do not get tired. I mean, this is very important. Yeah. Don't get tired um, because you're trying to do something that is big, and it's going to take That's a right. lot of you. And don't get tired. Frederick Douglass is my guy in terms when I think about historical figures. He is my guy. Because for a period of time in Frederick Douglass's life, his job was to prove that black people were human. Yeah. It's literally, he spent his time as an example, right. right? And Abraham Lincoln said he was one of the most meritorious men that he had ever met. But he spent a period of his life literally being an example that you could socialize and have black people around you without anything harming you. Right. And I'm the mayor of Atlanta, and I'm complaining about what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, lady all the way at the back.
special needs for uh, almost a year now, which is the very significant hit that the last middle class sort of aid conception. Yes. Starting with the very disproportionate uh, subprime mortgages, okay. including for affluent African Americans mm -hmm. homebuyers, and then the great differential in unemployment, three times higher for black Americans, and I don't But it's also true that unemployment is worse for most black Americans because of the wealth gap that already existed between them and white Americans. So there's no cushion for anything. I admit, I may be a little populistic, but it looks to me that we would have our first black president if we, we are also witnessing all around us uh, a real attack on a mass collapse of the black middle class. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Is black middle class uh, in serious decline, serious trouble? I, th I think it is in terms of the, yeah, I, I do. Um, and I think you've raised a number of points that are, that are contributing to that in the most recent history of, of, of this issue. I think that you could um, look at the subprime crisis. I know because I've been prosecuting mortgage fraud. As, and in fact, I just got a big federal grant to do more to build on the work. And my victims are disproportionately, first of all, the category of people who believe in the American dream. So people who held down one and two jobs, bought a home like they were supposed to, been paying their mortgage on time, their taxes on time, their bills on time, and now they find they're out of work and there are predators that are coming in the form of brokers and financial institutions who are literally stripping these families of their few remaining assets and their dignity. And it's a crime that for the most part is going without consequence because it does not rise at a high enough level to attract the, the large resources that go into it. And it's a crime that occurs, you know, through a, a document that is multi-paged. You know, I bought a little place, and I confess I didn't read every page I signed on my mortgage form. And you know, the crime that occurs through that, huh? I won't ask you to raise your hands. Um, and and so that's a crime that is difficult to pull together. Local law enforcement doesn't have the skill set to do it, so it goes without consequence. And there are predators who are still preying on these communities who are disproportionately immigrant communities and African-American. And you combine that with the, the pretty, not slow, but rapid deterioration of the public school systems in this country. Um, you know, you combine that with um, some, you know, misguided belief that Brown v. Board of Education solved all the disparities. When, by the way, Brown v. Board of Education was decided in 1954. <coughs> now, I was raised in elementary school in Berkeley Public Schools, Berkeley, California, right? Considered to be one of the most progressive places in the universe. I was part of the second class to integrate Berkeley Public Schools. That's how long Brown v. Board of Education took to actually hit the streets. And then we have decisions that say affirmative action and addressing disparities is a thing of the past because we're living in a post-racial era. Well, that's ridiculous. 
And so you combine these, you, these facts with another issue, which is that traditionally a lot of the black families from the South, for example, went east or west and left agriculture and went to industry. So the shipyards and things like that, which are increasingly closing. And then you also combine that with just, you know, what has happened in terms of, you know, the, the failed war on drugs. <laughs> like there are a number of variables that I think have, um, have coexisted to, to increase disparities in the African-American community. But I would suggest to you most important among them is the public education issue and the lack of, of, of attention that's being given to the fact that we are not very far away from Plessy v. Ferguson. And we are pretending, basically suggesting that, that separate is equal and, 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 and allowing people to be, you know, the, the discrimination in this country that was legalized. We're not that far away from it. And I don't think we did enough to, to correct the disparities. I take, it in, I take it in a little differently. I, I take on the responsibility in a more direct fashion. I mean, I certainly read regularly all of the, the very bad statistics uh, that face uh, black people, and I think about them a lot. But what I do is uh, I use the office that I have to do very targeted things mm -hmm. so that I am not just reading about it. So in the foreclosure space, um, as mayor of the city of Atlanta, we did um, a loan modification program that the city uh, initiated that helped more than 3,500 people modify their loans. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do is to take the specific problem and use the full weight of my office to address it. The high teen unemployment rate was an absolute problem. Um, I recruited and sought and got federal funds. We hired this summer uh, more than 2,000 teens that didn't have employment. And instead of having unemployment, they're going, instead of having a program, they have a job every day. It really does not attack these global issues, but I'm a big believer in what I can do using all of the power that I have to do something about the condition. And then I think it contributes to the bigger global, uh, the bigger conversation nationally. But if you don't have specific examples of success, like the number of uh, minority-owned business that the city of Atlanta has. Um, in Atlanta, I control, uh, have direct control over Hartsville-Jackson Airport, which is the busiest passenger airport on the planet. 45% um, of every dollar that's spent at Hartsville-Jackson Airport um, is spent with minority and women-owned businesses. So what I try to do is use the office that I have to, to, to live it, and then that helps um, and then lend my weight to these bigger issues. But I'm always asking people in office, what are you doing specifically about the problem? And then what keeps me awake at night is the bigger issue that I think impacts all of the issues you, you raise when you're sitting back and thinking about uh, the country. And, and uh, that is uh, the lack of black fathers, which I think really leads to all of the issues that you talked about, certainly the foreclosure space, certainly the unemployment space. And what I'm thinking through right now is how is it going to be, a, how is it, at what point are a cadre of African-American leaders going to lead a big conversation about the fact that uh, black boys and black girls have a 70% chance of not having mm -hmm. a male role model in their household and that we don't hear a voice 
in the black community having any kind of conversation about what is going to be done to help save those little boys and girls' lives. Mm. So, I mean, yep. that is the big thing that I think about. And then on the specifics, I try to do something about the specifics that's measurable using the office that I've been fortunate enough to have for a small period of time. Yeah. Yes, sir. It's it's a great question. I you know I often think about it that way that um, that voters are like jurors, and certainly running for office is like being in a really long trial. Um, you know, <laughs> as a prosecutor, you know you have to believe in your case. You know you have your your day set out, and and you know sometimes. You know, your witness does a really good job, and sometimes you just, oh my God, I don't know if we're going to make this thing. And, um, and you just go at it day after day, wake up and keep going, have to believe in your case. And jurors, like voters, I think, um, ultimately make hopefully the right decision, and they come at that decision through an analysis of the facts and the evidence, but also just common sense and, and you know, that saying mother wit and gut, and, um, and I think jurors make a decision ultimately um, based on who they feel they can trust, regardless of whether they agree with you on every issue. I think that Kasim is right that it is about rolling up your sleeves, and you've got to go to community meetings, and you've got to be accessible to people so they can feel you and they can hear you and they can understand why you think the way that you do. Um, I think that voters make decisions about who they elect based on why they think that person is running for office. And so they will elect someone who they believe is taking on the office because they are optimistic about their ability to effectuate change and will re-elect that person even if that person has fallen sh short of ending world hunger because they believe that person is motivated by the right goal. Um, I, I think there's something to be said for that. There has to be, you have to have the base, baseline of credentials. But beyond that, there is something else that is in the room and at play, I think, when people vote. But that's all assuming they know who you are. And, um, you know, and that gets back to earlier conversations we've had this morning. But um, ultimately, I think they do it based on what their gut tells them is somebody who's going to take on the position and, and see them and hear them and, and listen to them. We've got time. One last question. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, the conversation and polling and everything else that's going on around the country about a potential result coming out of the next election. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've listened to it, I hear it, etc. I've never been as quite taken aback as I have been since I came to Aspen, where I expected a more liberal slant and found an enormous amount of people, Democrat, independent, speaking about a different position than the president. Mm -hmm. What is questioning me is if there is a substantial rebuke in this election, what will that do to the progress 
but it's really taking place throughout the country uh, in the African-American community. Is that going to, is that going to hurt? Even though I don't think it has anything to do with his ethnicity mm -hmm. or with his policies, but if it happens, uh, that's going to be what the standing picture is for the next uh, few years. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, that's what I'm hearing. You're making sense, but I believe that that's the responsibility of the president and his political operation. And for whatever reason, um, they're not making adjustments, in my opinion, that need to be made. And I support the president un in an unwavering way um, because I believe that he has done extraordinary things. But at the end of the day, you can never stop playing the inside game. Just because you're playing chess doesn't mean you can stop playing checkers. <laughs> and on the political front, <laughs> On the political front, you can be so sophisticated. You can be so sophisticated, and and you know um, that you can outsmart yourself. And I really believe that the president, on if you get into a room and you debated the policies out, that the course is the right course, and folks that asked him could figure that out. But you can't ever forget that you, those aren't the folks that, that carry the day and carry the Congress. And I do believe that there's been a withdrawal of a muscular political operation that yeah. functions well. And I do believe that there is an arrogance um, that has shown repeatedly that things are off track. And, and I think that, that the fact that folks at Aspen are upset is a good thing because it gives you time to correct. But there doesn't seem to be a correction. I thought that Massachusetts mm -hmm. would have caused a an appropriate correction, and I still don't see it. And I think that that's because those folks are so insulated. I think you need to have yeah. a talk with yeah. the president. They're very <laughs> smart and they're very insulated. But you know, you hear, you know, you hear a conversation, and you say, you say that, um, you know, we're going to get the president out in the White House, get him out into the country, like that's doing the country a favor. Like, no, get it. You, you need to be out there making the case, making the arguments, and using using those extraordinary gifts. You know, when the, oil, uh, when the oil challenge happened, you know, some simple folks, you know, I said the president ought to go to, go to the coast with 15,000 um, Army National Guards. And then some really, really bright people said, well, you know, that's the old politics. That's disingenuous. Those people wouldn't be able to do anything about it. I said, but the country would feel like something was being done. <laughs> And you can, you, know, you can laugh at me, maybe I'm not smart, but I tell you, if the president had showed up on the beach with 15,000 people in the military, I don't care if they were scrubbing a rock. <laughs> the country would have felt that everything I can do um, is being done. And that's, that's checkers politics. Mm -hmm. You could have done an analysis that said those people aren't cleaning but 3% of the oil and all of the rest, right? But if you had done it in the first week, you control the conversation. And I think that this, uh, this focus and this repudiation has more to do with people that put a lot on the line. You gotta watch those halo politics. Whenever you, at, I get scared when somebody starts telling me I'm at 70 or 80. Mm -hmm. Because when people have that much hope and expectation, there's a responsibility to, of it. And that's the frustration of people feeling because they, they bet it all. They bet it all, and now they're concerned that they don't see the political work being done 
to continue um, the, the, the progress that was made in 06 and 08, and they've watched it all be in a moment of, of jeopardy. And I understand why Kamala's not saying anything. Well, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> I, I'll save her because we're out, we're out of time. But I, I'm you know, sorry. But I, I just want to say, just, you know. <laughs> I, I just want to say that Kasim and Kamala make me feel better about American politics.